0: Hello, everyone. This is Sake Ali, hosting the show, welcoming everyone to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. And today, uh, we'll be taking a deeper dive into West Indies nostalgia, one of the storied teams in cricket and probably all sport. And uh, I would have the help of uh, Simon Lester, who's written a couple of uh, uh, very important books to cover the, the rise of West Indies cricket during 70s and then carrying all the way into early 90s and uh, he's the author of Supercat and Fire in Babylon. Uh, the, the diehards already know that but uh, and Simon does a lot of cricket work. So on that note let me bring in my guest and he can probably introduce himself better. Hello Simon. Hi Saqib, nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. So if I miss anything in the introduction you want to elaborate what you have been up to and your association of the game, how far it goes back and uh, anything else you w- may want to add? No, that was that was pretty good. Um,
1: I started off writing about cricket in the early two thousands for I, for the Wisdom Cricket Monthly. I think it was the Wisdom Cricket Monthly in those days. It's changed its name a few times, and um, yeah, I was in my mid thirties, and I accidentally applied to be the T boy at the Wisdom uh magazine and the guy who was the editor at the time who's become a friend of mine John Stern who's a, a fine cricket writer and, and broadcaster here in the UK uh actually John was the deputy I think and um Stephen uh, Fay was the editor and he said uh, look mate uh, you're a bit old to be the tea boy but if I send you a book you can do a, rev- a review <laughs> and um I think it was a biography of Ganguly actually and so I did my 150-word review and was thrilled to get published in um in a in a national cricket magazine. And that was the beginning really. And a couple of years after that, or maybe twelve months after that, the Wisdom magazine gave me a column and it was called Eyewitness. And it was really interesting because it's Uh, What it did was recreate famous old games or significant occurrences in cricket, like a World Cup final or or some quite off the wall things as well. And I would speak to the old players and um, you would recreate the, the match in their words. And it was a wonderful way of getting used to speaking to cricketers and getting to understand the game and their experiences from the past. And... One of my fellow columnists on the Wisdom magazine was a wonderful guy called Stephen Chalk. And he used to do a a feature for for Wisdom called Way Back When. And Stephen has only just wound up his own publishing company. It's been Fairfield Books, been a brilliant cricket writing um, publisher. And um, he suggested to me that I should write a book. And he said, who do you want to write a book about? And I said, well, I adore wicket keeping, And one of my heroes has been Alan Knott. I'd love to write a book about Alan Knott. And so he said, well, ring him up and see what he says. And I wrote to Alan Knott. And uh, sadly, Alan emailed back and said, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not interested in writing a book with you. He was very polite, but that was what he said. And so I went back to Stephen Chalk and I said, I don't think this is going to work. And he said, look, you did that column on the 1975 World Cup the other day. And uh, I thought some of the things Clive Lloyd said in that were really interesting. Uh, Why don't you try him? And I said, well, I've got his number and I spoke to him. But There's no way in the world he's going to agree to do a book. He's just too big. But I rang him up and astonishingly, Clive... uh, who was very generous, said, OK, let's do something. And that's really how it started. So I think Supercat, which was the official biography of uh, Clive Lloyd, which he and I wrote together in um, 2006, 2007, and really everything has stemmed from that because, uh, as you know, and many of your listeners will know, when Fire in Babylon came along, the great movie about the West Indies cricket team, um, a documentary really rather than a movie, Uh, I was an advisor on that. And when that had all finished, the guy who directed the film, Stephen Riley, said to me, would you like to write a book about it? And um, using all of that material he had from the documentary, that's how Fire in Babylon, the book, came out. So it was a little bit backwards, Hmm. really, in terms of a a film and a book combination, because almost always the book comes first and then film treatment.
0: Absolutely, that was that was one of my prep questions, and I pretty much came to the conclusion. I said, "Yeah, this looks like you. Your book uh wasn't a reprint. It actually did come out uh, come outside uh, after the uh, documentary." Yeah, so I think it was a good four years later. Yeah. Did you have to do any additional research? Because I'm sure, in good documentary, there was so much material they probably even left out, and that's why a book is needed. But in your case, was there any additional work that or any additional calls that have to be made? To, to do further research. Yeah, there was a huge amount of work because if
1: you're making a, a movie, I mean, my day job is making um, three-minute films for BBC News, and you can explain almost nothing in three minutes. It's really hard to explain the history and the culture and the development of West Indian cricket in 90 minutes. So uh, Stephen did a brilliant film, and he had tremendous access, but just through necessity... Uh, because this thing couldn't be five hours long, uh, he had to leave an awful lot of stuff out or there are areas that he couldn't really explore. Hmm. And the luxury I had, Saqib, was to be able to broaden and um, become more extensive in some of the areas where the film uh, didn't have time to go. So I was able to do... Uh, as you said in your introdu- introduction a much a deeper dive into the history of west indian cricket go back right to the beginning of the 20th century and
0: even before so and, did, did supercat help you oh,
1: Because he you entry, already had written yeah, that yeah.
0: Uh, to because I, into- I i'd,
1: I'd never I'd, uh, I'd never done anything really substantial till i wrote supercat i'm astonished that it ever got off the ground <laughs> because uh i was such a shambling amateur and um, i learned so much uh when I was writing, the the brilliant uh, Australian cricket writer, Gideon Haig, someone asked him once, why do you keep writing cricket books? And he says, to avoid making all the mistakes I made in the previous one. And, <laughs> that's, that's <and> <laughs> I know exactly what he means. Because when I look back at Supercat now, I, there, was, there was some, I think there was some rudimentary quality in it, but there was an awful lot of things that I would have liked to have changed or I just didn't have the experience to cope with But I think I think it's still a, still a good book.
0: And, and you know, it's so profound while I laughed at it because it was a very wise line for him to say, I, this is one of my follow-up questions. Uh, if you were to write, uh, say, Fire in Babylon, now with the Black Lives Matter movement going on, you think it would be any different? Because, you know, as a writer, your ideas evolve and you know more and you just mm. said it, right? So is there any... Uh, is there any changes uh, or any chapters you would like to add if you were to be doing it in the midst of this movement right now? Well,
1: you know, the West Indies are playing a series here in England as we speak. I think it's actually lunch lunch yeah. now on the um, day, day one of the final test. And for when one considers what has happened across uh, the world in the past six months, and when you see a group of black cricketers uh, in England down on one knee all wearing a single black glove Uh, and they're honouring their people and they are um, making a point about Black Lives Matter, a very important one. Uh, For a cricket writer who has specialised in the West Indies, that's really quite an astonishing moment. So I think, if if i was writing fire in babylon now i think something like that happening to see jason holder and his team in that pose and what that what that moment actually means to them as uh, ambassadors of black sporting excellence and what that means to the wider people all across the uk and around the world i think that's an extremely significant happening and so yeah I'd love to have mentioned that if I was doing fire in Babylon now, I should say though that there are you know there are large parts of fire in Babylon which are dedicated to the social history of uh the West Indies and the political uh development the diaspora here in the u k and those subjects and those thoughts that Jason Holder and his team may have been having in the past month or so and their desire to do what they did they were never very far from fire in babylon anyway and while it would be a mistake to say um, that fire in babylon was about black power it was very much about um, the consciousness of black athletes and what their success meant to the people that they represented and of course you know in 2020 if you have black athletes raising their fist and they have a single black glove on, you can't think of anything else other than the Mexico Olympics in 1968 and, and the podium. Um, and you have um, uh, the, uh, to- Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Uh, and so, you know, you've got virtually my lifetime um, those things have been apparent and so they've been very significant part of far in Babylon and that journey of black athleticism within a cricketing context some of those uh some of those emotions and some of those thoughts and some of those aspirations have have accompanied that journey along the way
0: no absolutely and that can be a bigger conversation because uh that was not the agenda, but, you know, I couldn't resist the temptation. How would you do it differently today? So let's uh, look back at Supercat. So when you made that phone call and, you know, the book came together, so were there any surprises uh, when you tried to work with Clive Lloyd? What did you uncover that, you know, you didn't know about the man? I'm sure there was plenty, but was there any surprises, like in terms of expectations because such a superstar who unified, you know, the West Indies team gave its new identity and his background's pretty uh, it's something that we can also talk about like how he had a tough upbringing uh, he was raised by a single parent so feel free to unpack him any way you want uh, while you experience working with him well I
1: the first cricket match I ever saw in my life uh, was the oval test in 1976 between England and the West Indies it was the Monday so because of the rest day in those days I guess it would have been the fourth day and so I was uh, seven years old then, and it was an astonishing visual and uh, experience for me, and a, a sensory experience as well, which I've never forgotten. And you know, the guy down there in the middle, the tallest of them all, with the hat on and the glasses, was Clive Lloyd. So I suppose he'd always been a, a part of my my life, really. And um, in in terms of sporting heroes although he was probably a subconscious one because I was very much an England fan. Um, But I was astonished by seeing these guys. I remember that experience because I grew up in the middle of England in a county called Shropshire, which was very rural and it was very um, uh, small in terms of villages and towns. Um, I'd never really uh, had any experience of living near or seeing black people. I, I didn't know... Uh, that there were black people living in the UK Uh, I lived in a fairly homogenous part of England in a in a agricultural county and so this was an astonishing visual experience for me to this sort of new world opened up and there were these guys out there on the pitch and as you say Lloyd was the captain he was the leader I was surprised well the first thing that surprised me was that he entrusted me with writing a book about him. That was the first thing that was surprising. So he took a bit of a punt. Um, Clive uh, is a a modest man. He's, um, he's deeply thoughtful and articulate, but not in a demonstrative way. So the reason I say that, Sakib, is because it took me quite a while to get to know him. So I think he was probably testing me out a little bit. Um, he obviously had to trust me, and I had to get enough from him to make his life interesting, which wasn 't difficult, but we had to have a way of ordering it and making it accessible to readers. So we set off on a journey really, and that journey took us to um lancashire uh it took us we went to Guyana together we went to Trinidad and Barbados. And I spoke to Clive, I spoke to the people who knew him best when he was growing up in Georgetown. And I was able to piece together this extraordinary life, really, of a man who, uh, whose father was an alcoholic, uh, of whom Clive himself, nothing was expected, because he was from the black lower middle class in Georgetown. Virtually every single authority figure in his life was a white man. And his destiny was to become a poorly poorly paid clerk at the Ministry of Health. And there he should remain because that was his place and that was his calling. But his athleticism, his brilliance as a cricketer, was the ejector seat which flung him from his constraints and his talent uh, and his um intelligence and his strategic development as a cricketer meant that he could leave the the community that he was sort of previously destined because of the the constraints of colonial society to 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 stay in for the rest of his life and there there's no doubt in my mind that what happened in Clive's early life informed his captaincy of the West Indies. And the the tribulations that he faced, his father died when he was about 14. He was had to look after his mother uh, and his brothers and sisters. Uh, and so he said, look, that night when my dad died, and I had to cycle across Georgetown in a tropical storm to tell the wider family that he was dead, my life changed forever. And it wasn't easy. And that night, he became a leader because he had to take on responsibilities that that he had never envisaged he would have to. And um, his experiences in Georgetown uh, in the 1950s and 60s informed his captaincy. And so when, 20 years later, he was actually elected as as captain of the West Indies, he had a, a psychological understanding of people and how they fitted together and his role as a leader which I think had been there in part in West Indian cricket because you had astonishing men such as Frank Worrell but the reason one of the principal reasons why the West Indians did what they did in the 70s and 80s was down to Lloyd's leadership and I think that's irrefutable.
0: No, I think that's, uh, and thank you, you you paved my way for the next question of the Great Frank War, like you mentioned. So Lloyd comes from Guyana, you know, if you look at the map, I mean, I'm no expert, but it's uh, a lot closer to, say, Latin America than the other islands. Mm -hmm. So culturally, too, I mean, I'm sure you've uncovered, you know, how these islands only come together to play cricket under the banner of West Indies. Otherwise, they all have their own identity, own governments. So... Mm -hmm. How is it? Uh, how much of a cultural challenge was to blend, you know, the forces together and play for a common cause? And of course, the trigger was when they got soundly beaten by Lily and Tomo and the Australian side five-one. Uh, so, have you explored the cultural aspects, like how, you know, this man management exercise, you know, got triggered and why he was so successful when other men prior to him, I would, I don't want to say failed, but they didn't have the same success. Yeah, the absolutely crucial
1: thing to recognise about Clive Lloyd was that he understood the West Indian psyche. And some pe- some people may know, others may not, that there is the West Indies have almost nothing in common. They're a disparate collection of islands and territories uh, that have extremely varied and different uh, geographies and cultures and histories and understanding of race and religion. And expectation, and they're the only thing that they have in common, as you say, is cricket. The only West Indian flag there is, is the one that flies from the roof of a cricket pavilion. And so Lloyd was shrewd enough and intelligent enough to work out that uh, what he needed to do was to abandon forever the insularity, the bickering, the selfishness. That had bedevilled West Indian cricket uh, since its inception, really, since the beginning. I mean, they they first, I think, they were welcome to Test cricket in nineteen in twenty eight. But they'd been playing international matches since the beginning of um, the twentieth century. Their cricket was permanently flawed by the divisions that existed within everyday West Indian life, because you could only pick certain players from certain islands uh, in the old days. Uh, If a test match was in Jamaica, the captain had to be a Jamaican. The second test match might be in Trinidad and the captain of that team would have to be a Trinidadian. So in terms of coming up with a coherent strategy to beat other cricket teams, it was absolutely disastrous. And um, I mean, you mentioned Frank Worrell there. When Frank Worrell uh, took his team to England in 1963... Jamaica hadn't played Trinidad for 13 years, I think, something like that. Um, you know, Barbados hadn't played Trinidad, um, that th- they played each other six times since 1949. So there was no experience of inter island cricket in any meaningful sense, because the occasions were so few and far between. And that is because of the geography of the West Indies. Uh, as you say, Clive Lloyd was from British Guyana, a massive country on the, the northern Tip of South America. Um, there, there was a, a, a president of, a uh, prime minister of Guyana in the 70s, 60s, and 70s called Forbes Burnham who said, Look, we've got islands in the mouth of our river here in Guyana. that are as big as other West Indian territories. Um, so the islands are all completely different and separate. It's 1,200 miles from Jamaica to, to Trinidad. So the vast distances between all these places were, were a real. Um, encumbrance on how they played their cricket. Now, if you look at England, where I grew up as a a counter, um, in that same time period that that Jamaica and, and Trinidad didn't really play each other, Yorkshire versus Surrey, the two best county teams in England, they'd have played each other nearly 30 times. And so there was no real tradition of international cricket in the West Indies. What you had was a series and a collection of very talented club cricketers who had to reach international cricket in one step. So it was no surprise that, you know, quite often the wheels would come off and that the West Indians would collapse or they didn't have the mental fortitude to see through a test match or they would, they would be in a winning position and then throw it away because they simply weren't hardened professional cricketers. And the one, thing, one of the many things that Lloyd did in the 70s and 80s was that he, he got rid of all that insularity and he made people realise, the players in the team, that you could be a Trinidadian and you could trust a Jamaican, that you could be from Barbados and uh, share a room with someone from St. Vincent uh, in, in the same hotel. And what he did was split people up. He'd put batsmen with bowlers when they were lodging on tour. He'd put people from different islands and territories together. And so they had a sense of common purpose, Which, because the West Indies is a terribly cliquey place. Uh, And even when these people came to England um, after the war to find work and to look for economic betterment, um, if you ended up in London or High Wycombe or Birmingham, you tended to seek out everyone else who was there from dominica or you you sought out other jamaicans in your part of the city and it wasn't really until these men and women went to a test match that they felt west indian Uh, there was very much a sense of um there was no no real sense of interdependence on other islands or territories you were guyanese or you were jamaican and that was a very strong identity so one of the things that Lloyd did was 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 to be able to get rid of that for the betterment of West Indian cricket, and of course everybody knows what
0: followed thereafter. Yeah, the rest is history, and that's that's brilliant stuff. Because I did a similar podcast with Indian senior writer Ayaz Memon and uh, Tiger Patadi did something similar to India. Uh, you know, when he was captaining, mm. he said you play for India, not for different states and different languages spoken. So yeah, that's that's uh, really uh, good stuff. So again, no, in in my view, no, uh, no conversation about Lloyd is uh, complete without Richards who is a man he uh, who succeeded him and was the best player in his team so if you've spoken to Viv during these books what is his relation with Lloyd uh, and how respectful that is again I'm sure it's captured but I wanted to hear what the conversation is like how you know the legendary Lloyd is received by the man who succeeded him
1: yeah well they were they were good friends
0: uh, on the pitch and
1: one of lloyd's advantages when he took over the captaincy of the west indies was that he was that much older from than lots of the other guys in the team and so he instantly had an authority let's say in, in australia that very difficult tour 75 76 where they got walloped by the west india by the australian fast bowlers um, and so he was able to uh, i mean things were very difficult at the beginning and Richards was a brilliant talent and um, an astonishing batsman. But I think he opened in a couple of those test matches in Australia in 75 76, and no one really knew what the lineup of that West Indian batting side was. And it was when he found his place in the high middle order when they came to England in 76, uh, and he made that astonishing two nine one 1 at uh, the Oval. And I think he also made a, a double hundred. Earlier in the series, um, that his his true gifts were beginning to be revealed, and that but they were very different men. Um, I remember Desmond Haynes saying to me once that um, if if Clive Lloyd asked you to run over a, a mountain and down the other side, you you did it because you had so much respect for him. But if Viv asked you to do the same, you did it because you'd be frightened of the consequences if you didn't. Um, so they were very different in their captaincy skills, and they were from, as I alluded to before, they were from different generations. So Lloyd was essentially brought up in a colonial British uh, environment. He received what they call in Georgetown a British Christian education, and everything, he, he was identifiable with the British colonial culture in a way that Richards definitely wasn't, and in a way that Richards deliberately wasn't, because all the cultural influences on Lloyd's life were European ones, principally British ones. All the significant cultural influences on Richards' life, in terms of radical politics, uh, music, uh, understanding of who he was as a black man, came largely from the United States, because Viv was that much younger, and he was very um, caught up in uh, the Black Power movement uh, that was emanating out of the uh, the states in the 60s and the 70s. That's not to say he was part of it, but it was a huge cultural influence on him. And there was a long tradition of radical politics in um, and, and and a fight for for independence in Antigua, of which he was very much aware of in his family. And all of that stuff he carried with him. Uh, and his identity, the connection to Africa, the way he wore the red, Russell. gold, and green sweatband um, on, his, on his wrist in England in the 80s. All those things meant an awful lot to him. And they informed the way he played cricket and they informed his captaincy as well. So my understanding of the captaincy of uh, Lloyd's and Richard's is that I, th- I think Lloyd is the most significant captain the West Indies have ever had because he taught them how to win and uh, they had been world champions before don't forget under Sobers and Worrell in the early 60s but no one knew how to keep it that way lloyd unlocked that secret richards's captaincy was much more mus- uh, muscular it was much more direct and i think it relied more on his brilliance as a batsman and he led by example in a way that no other west indian captain has before or since i think but i think in terms of strategy I think there will be some players who say who would say that Richards' uh, tactical strategy was of uh, the equal of that of Lloyd.
0: Mm, That's uh, that's uh, quite uh, the unpacking there, and it definitely makes me wonder because uh, uh, with Richards, as a young fan, you astute, you know, a lot of talent, and with Lloyd, again, that's how stuff was fed Uh, when I was uh, consuming cricket. Lloyd had strategy, and he was a visionary, and Richard just, you know, took that. process further so uh, let's look at some of the the big achievements or the big moments of this team and the 76 Old Trafford is one controversial spot according to many especially that one hour of uh, one and a half hour of fast bowling uh, against the English openers where you know uh, a, lo- a lot has been spoken about so when you spoke to these uh, players from the West Indies how do they look back at that test match and would they have done things differently I know in the Fire in Babylon documentary they say, you know, that was what they were playing for at that time. Uh, everybody made them as like villains or, you know, even the word terrorist was used. But how do they look back, you know, say 30-odd years of competition uh, on that uh, evening of the test match?
1: Well, I mean, it was an extraordinary evening. I mean, the first thing to say about that test match is the pitch was appalling. And it had, a you know, a longitudinal crack. Running down it, it was very underprepared. And that summer in 1976 in England, as you may know, was extremely hot. It was it was the drought summer, and um, the pitch wasn't really fit for Test match cricket. Um, But the the bald facts were that that um, Brian Close and John Ettridge, who, who who opened the batting for England, both of the I think Close was 45. And Edrich was not far behind him. Uh, Clive Lloyd said to me once, Brian Close should have been watching the game from a bar with a gin and tonic in his hand. He just—he simply wasn't capable, despite his mad bravery and his courageousness. He wasn't really capable of of, of batting against the West Indians. And um, it was it was an intense evening of of international cricket. And you had Michael Holding, you had Wayne Daniel, you had Andy Roberts, and. I think I think they might say now that they might have done things differently but in in a way it's a it's an impossible thing to recreate because holding was in his early 20s he was told to bowl fast um Wayne Daniel also and I I don't think they they were capable of doing anything differently um it, it's a difficult one because
0: now okay, that- let's let, let, see so, so let me throw in a comparison i've heard yeah. again the legends of tomo and lily and Tomo especially so what was it that different what these guys were doing that what jeff thompson had done throughout his career so what what was it why was it one hour so different was it just because england were at receiving end uh or was it just like the extraordinary one hour of ferocious balling so why that stands out as a student of the game we have all read about it but why was it any different than the Lily, Tamo Kale, kill all that stuff that has been documented in the documentary?
1: Well, probably because it happened to English people. So we moaned about it more. You know, it's all right for these guys to do things to other people. But when it happens to us, we don't like it. Um, I think, uh, you know, when that England key team arrived in 1976 to play the West Indies, they looked like, as someone said, um, a, a a, a, a team of bank managers, you know, David um, Steele with his white hair and Derek Underwood uh, covered in dust at the Oval. And they didn't really look like a formidable bunch. But what Lillian Thompson did was a really, um, in, in the previous year, was a, was a really uh, brilliant example of how to bowl fast. They weren't trying to take people's heads off. And actually, that series wasn't, in Australia, wasn't really a bouncer series. There there wasn't a huge amount, despite, you know, if you condense it into a few pictures of people being hit and stuff, it wasn't really about trying to knock people's blocks off. It was about really aggressive, fast uh, test match bowling. And what happened in, in England in 1976 is that Lloyd knew that if he was to survive as captain... And if the West Indies were to flourish as a cricket team, they had to have a new strategy because they'd really messed things up against India in, um, in the West Indies previously in 1976 and thrown away 400 runs in the fourth innings at Trinidad and uh, using spin bowlers. And so Lloyd knew that there had to be a new strategy and 76 was really only the beginning of it. I mean, you can't really say that one hour at Old Trafford on a Saturday evening exemplified the way the West Indians bowled because there were so many different specific circumstances the age of Close and Edrich, the state of the pitch, the state of the game, um, the way the crowd were um, in some sort of almost hypnotic state of, of adulation egging on the West Indians. Um, that, that really didn't represent what they were doing as a whole. But I think, yes, it was aggressive, it was tough, but it, wasn't, um, it wasn't, hadn't been anything different, say, from how the Indians had faced um, West Indies in Jamaica six months previously, you know, when everyone
0: came back down the steps of the airport wearing bandages. So you made some interesting points, Simon, and even in the series against India, uh, where, you know, they gave away a huge chase. So what does Lloyd remember of that chase? I mean, would he done, have done something differently? Because Gavaskar and Vishwanath scored centuries, and that's one of the biggest Indian wins overseas ever, chasing 407.
1: Yeah, I think what that, what that test match revealed to Lloyd was that he couldn't win uh, games with the bowlers he had. And it was that experience in Trinidad. Uh, he didn't have anything against spin bowlers. But if you can't bowl a side out in the fourth innings when you're, you've got 400 to defend they're not the right guys for the job so it was at that moment uh and this wasn't a it wasn't a sort of damascene moment it wasn't a a, a strike of lightning it was the continuance of, of the development of west indian cricket that lloyd knew that he had to have something different and that was when He began, Holding was already playing in that series. I think Daniel played as well. So there were fast bowlers around. And um, what it meant was that Lloyd was looking for something new. But the formative experience in Lloyd's captaincy was the thrashing by Australia six months previously. And when that happened, he said, this will never happen again. And we will come back here and be winners. And he knew, he knew, he knew he needed the same sort of firepower that the West, that the Australians had had against his team in 75, 76.
0: Sure. So a few more questions before we wrap this, and this is very intriguing stuff. So no conversation again would be fully complete in my view, if we don't bring up the, the Calypso magic and, you know, we all know how that, you know, has aged, but, uh, this is more like a media observation question because it's happening across all sport. I mean, with Twitter and social media, there are a lot of independent voices coming in, but West Indians had objected to it even back then. So was it like just lazy writing or was it just the narrative of, again, who writes a history? So even though intentions were good, but West Indians were offended by the term Calypso magic and they thought they were just like taken as light entertainers, people who really didn't have the ability to strategize things. And two things can be true, but I think a society we've evolved. Do you think that was just a lazy narrative as part of uh, the media describing uh, the rise of West Indies and their cricket?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was lazy and it was to an extent offensive because it betrayed a complete lack of understanding of, of, of what West, West Indian cricket had been <clears throat> and what West Indian cricket could go on to become. I mean, you know, apart from a, a very basic level Calypso isn't a thing across the entire West Indies region anyway. Um, You know, it's only in in certain territories. Uh, The the terrible thing about Calypso cricket is it sounds nice off the tongue, but it is lazy because if you unpack it, um, it doesn't really mean anything. And um, what the West Indians felt about the term Calypso cricket was that it was pejorative, that it suggested that they were easy come, easy go entertainers who didn't have the intelligence or the athleticism to see out um, their promise and that they liked entertaining, but they weren't really that bothered about the result. And if you look at the development of West Indian cricket um, throughout its history, there have been uh, uh, characters and players who have, if you look at the uh, George Headley, Constantine, Uh, Worrell, Sobers, they're the absolute antithesis of Calypso cricket because their brilliance was built on training, repetition, education, self-analysis and uh, a personal development which precludes any sort of idea that they just went out there and flung the bat or laughed with um, their teammates and came off the pitch. So that's one thing. The second thing is and I think this is very important when you understand the journey of West Indian cricket that it suited parts of the media, particularly in in England, to have this idea that the West Indies were somehow uh, unformed that they were somehow simple uh, and that they weren't able to carry out things with true authority and the whole calypso cricket thing played into all that uh, those tropes and when the west indians did become successful in the late 1970s through to the mid 1990s for a lot of english cricket writers and people in the media it was a great shock and they didn't like it and they thought that the west indies had somehow besmirched the game by having a series of fast bowlers and were trying to bowl to take people's heads off now no one who I've spoken to who played test cricket for England thinks that they thought that the West Indies were brilliant and the ultimate test of their uh, character and their athleticism as professional cricketers was to test themselves against the West Indians. Um, people in the crowd didn't think it. They adored uh, seeing the West Indies come to England because they, uh, the test matches were sold out uh, and um, it was almost impossible Uh, to get tickets. So it was only the media who kept um, perpetuating this idea uh, that the West Indians were lovable, smiling, um, uh, fun characters, but clownish. And then suddenly they became sinister over the years and mugged people of, of cricket matches and there was something wrong with them. So... Yeah, calypso cricket is not something uh, that term is not something that West Indians like at all. And people who use it, it really betrays a lack of understanding uh, of any uh, real, it it betrays a complete lack of understanding of really what West Indian cricket uh, has been about.
0: No, Very, very true and quite profound. So uh, the Golden Era ended and then the Brian Lara era and then the, you know, succeeded Richards era. So how does Lloyd and Richard and some of these guys see the the steady decline in West Indies cricket? Of course, they're a really good team in the white ball format, but they just haven't had the same kind of players. So do they at, attribute it to the NBA, the U.S. influence? Uh, have, have, what, what is Lloyd's take and what, have, what are your observations uh, on this topic, uh, on the steady decline?
1: Well, I think the some of the players from the 70s and 80s have been profoundly upset by what has happened to West Indian cricket. Um, I should say that West Indian cricket now is in a much healthier place than it was 10 years ago. Uh, And you've seen the significant victories in tournaments, which have really shown the the best of West Indian cricket, particularly, as you say, uh, in the shorter format. But I think nothing lasts forever. there was no reason why the West Indies should should have gone on being brilliant. Uh, that said, there was a lamentable lack of forward planning and thinking about West Indian cricket during the great years. So um, West Indian cricket always did well despite itself, not because of its successes. And when you look at the relationship between the players and the board, which was always pretty terrible, Um, The things that really bedeviled West Indian cricket for years, certainly at an administrative and structural level, never never went away. That uh, I think you have seen, certainly in the past decade, a huge amount of self-interest within the governance of West Indian cricket. For some bizarre reason, uh, there have been times where the West Indies board has been full of people Uh, who have barely played a first-class game, never mind test cricket amongst them, that they have been businessmen and women. Um, And if you're going to go into it with that attitude, then only one thing will follow, and that will be a structural and systematic failure of what you're trying to promote. So I think the failure of West Indies cricket uh, after that golden era Um, when Richards and Lloyds retired and it went really downhill after that, um, has been shocking for lots of people. I think so much, though, has changed in the West Indies in the past 40 years that it would be impossible to recreate what there used to be because people's individual expectations are so different. Most of those men who played under Clive Lloyd and Viv Richards did so for a specific reason. Uh, they obviously wanted to make money. They wanted to to make their lives better. But they also played for a greater good um, because they believed in the furtherance of the West Indies uh, as 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 a, as a nation. They believed in furthering um, their people's um, enjoyment of the game and what it meant to be a West Indian on the world stage. And I think in the age of globalization that has completely disappeared and there's no reason why it should have stayed it's just that things have moved on so you have now millionaire west indian cricketers who may never have even have played test cricket which in lloyd's or richard's time would have been inconceivable so there's been a massive shift in uh, what people's expectations are in the west indies um what they want from life and that has had a great effect on Uh, how the the cricketers have been able to uh, recruit people and how they have played on the pitch.
0: Well, that's a very insightful take. And, you know, like as a fan too, we all have been guilty. And you're right. They had a different cause, a greater cause. And, you know, it was a more coming-of-age story for that group of men. And now uh, we all know the answer, and you just unpacked it beautifully. It's not like a country. This is a collection of islands. So after that, there was no guarantee or there was, you know, that it should have stayed like other cricket uh, programs, like Australia teams keep kept getting better. England team, Indian team. So yeah, it's 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 very fascinating. We always just wanted someone to replace Richards and Hooper and those brilliant players, but uh, maybe the you know the answer lies elsewhere. And I think you, you gave some very sound reasoning. So we come to the end of it. Last two three minutes is all yours. When you wrote this book, anything you want to share with the listeners that I didn't ask any anecdotes from players, anything, any funny story, any, any learning curves that you had when you discovered, you know, uh, what you did while writing Fire in Babylon. So uh, the floor is all yours. So whatever you want to say at the end of the show. Well, it
1: was a great privilege to have written the book and to be able to follow on from such a fine film. I'm glad that it's, uh, I think the film came out in 2010 or 11 and the book in 15. I'm glad that people are still interested in both those things, and I think "Fire and Babylon," the the film and, and and the book, are a a worthy representation of an extraordinary journey, really. And I, I do think I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think the West Indian journey, in terms of how their cricket has has gone, and uh, I think the development of West Indian cricket is the most Uh, exciting story in in all of sport I would say that and I think those those 10 years under Lloyd and then under Richards you you saw something that seemed inconceivable that you had this little scattered collection of islands thrown across little dots really just thrown across the Caribbean Sea and they went on to take on the world and beat it and it was it was something that could probably never be repeated. But when you set their achievements against the catastrophe of human history that that was the legacy of slavery, and you see that what was done to those islands two hundred years ago and why they existed and what came out of it through sport in the seventies and eighties, it's just it's just a fantastic tale. And I don't think it can ever be repeated really, and yeah, it was just it was a privilege to be able to delve into some of those things and to try and sort it all out in my own head and to speak to a lot of very inspirational men and women who had been part of the journey and to be able to I hope faithfully tell their
0: story that was that was quite wonderful, and thanks for your time. I know we went a few minutes over, but this is the kind of conversations. You know, happens when you talk about nostalgia and history of the of the great sport that we all love. Thank you very much, Simon Lister, coming on the show. I hope the audience will enjoy this uh, because I certainly did. Thanks very much, Saqib. It was lovely to speak to you, and thank you for having me.